0: This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Tatiana Lin Hoyeva, assistant professor in the Department of History at New York University. Dr. Lin Hoyeva is the author of Revolution Goes East, Imperial Japan, and Soviet Communism, forthcoming from Cornell University Press in 2020. Dr. Lin Hoyeva, thank you so much for talking with me today.
1: Ah, uh, thank you for having me.
0: I want to talk to you because you have this book coming out from Cornell in March 2020 called "Revolution Goes East." And you know, we've been talking a lot about on this Meiji at 150 podcast series about how during the Meiji period Japan opens up, and you know, this classic narrative of Matthew Perry coming in, and as a result, it's often a story of Americans and British and these other Western powers. Yet. Russia doesn't really get inserted into that story too much. Is, is this one of the things you're trying to correct in this book?
1: Yes, it's a great question. It's a great way to start to talk uh, about my book. Yes, indeed. The reason why I actually uh, chose this topic, Revolution Goes East, Imperial Japan, and Soviet Communism, is to look at uh, what kind of role Imperial Russia and Soviet Russia later played in East Asian politics and in modern Japanese history. And yes, Russia was very important. And, you know, this common expression threat from the North and this conventional idea that Japanese leadership was really afraid of the Russians. And in my book, I touch upon these issues. And yes, indeed, there was a kind of perceived threat from the North, especially after the Trans-Siberian Railroad was built starting from 1891. And of course, there is the Russo Japanese War. But this is only kind of one side of the story. There is another side of the story when Japan was really interested in cooperating with Russia, the Japanese leadership military and political and economic leadership as well, they saw different ways to, you know, ally themselves with the Russians. And in cultural sphere as well, there is a lot of attraction to Russian culture, Russian literature. And in my book, I talk about a particular attraction from the Japanese side to the Russian revolutionary thought and Russian social thought as well. The interest in Russian culture and thought came since 1880s. The translation of Russian literature was very, very active in 1880s, 1890s. Common Japanese people, they knew the names of, you know, uh, Lev Tolstoy and Anton Chekhov and Turgenev and Dostoevsky was extremely popular. And actually Dostoevsky's uh, works were translated into foreign language for the first time in Japan. So the Japanese translation of Dostoevsky was its first translation into any foreign language. And after 1918, right after the Russian Revolution, so there was another wave of, of interest in Russia. And that was, of course, interest in Russian Marxism and Lenin and Bolsheviks. So I was interested in how Japan dealt with international communism. And specifically with the, this emerging superpower, Soviet Union and its ideology, right, Soviet communism, which was obviously different from classical Marxism. And Japanese, uh, not only socialists, but you know, just educated people, they knew very well what was Marxism. But Soviet communism came as something completely different, right? So the Russian Revolution, I argue, was indeed a revolution that shook the world, and Imperial Japan was not an exception. And it had the, the revolution and international communism had an enormous impact that left intellectual earthquake, right? In Japan that changed completely sort of political, intellectual, social and cultural situation. But in my book, I looked at intellectual changes, right? And ideological change on the one hand, but also I look at the story from the geopolitical point of view.
0: So you mentioned before that there is this perception of a threat from the early Meiji period, and uh, certainly we can, as we've talked about before on some earlier podcasts, you know, there's Mm -hmm. people like Yamagata Aritomo, who's one of these oligarchs who's leading the military, talking about fears of Russian invasion, and he's using it almost as a a reason to build up the military, Mm -hmm. but that certainly was on the minds of many defensive planners in Japan.
1: Uh, Yes, the Russian threat was on the minds of the Japanese leadership, yes. And there is an interesting uh, moment in 1871, the newly established Japanese foreign ministry, they sent a mission to what is now North Korea to investigate the borders. And there are reports that confirm that actually Korea and Russia have uh, shared borders. And then another report also writes that there is a lot of migration of Koreans to the Russian Far East so these reports really alarm the japanese government right and uh, now they see that russians may not stop with this maritime province and they may go further onto the korean peninsula yes there is that and magata ritomo uses you know his first national defense plan he uses the russian threat to get more military budget and create this you know the the whole kind of defense was revolved around stopping the russians There was that. But at the same time, what I'm trying to say in my work, a lot of this rhetoric about the threat from the North was just rhetoric. And a lot of times it was used for some other goals. And it was a very convenient rhetoric for other purposes. And even if we move to the 1920s and 1930s, yes, there was a concern with international communism and the influence of Soviet communism, especially in China and Korea. But the threat of communism or the, you know the red threat sometimes uh, was used just to cover and justify what the Japanese imperial army was doing in China,
0: and you mentioned there is the rhetoric of a threat mm-hmm. and I mean, but there was cases, um, and obviously the Russo-Japanese War is this, you know, this hot spot of tension between Russia and Japan. To say it, put it lightly, but even in Korea before that, from 1895 or so, you know, there's competition in Korea between Russia yeah. and Japan. But then after the Russo-Japanese War, Russia again kind of disappears from the story a little bit until we get to say the 20s or 30s. Mm-hmm. What's happening in the meantime? I, mean, I assume the Russian Revolution plays a large role in this, but do ties between Japan and Russia cease? Through the 19 teens
1: and 20s? Yeah, Russia actually doesn't disappear between 1905 and 1917. This decade is actually has been researched in more in diplomatic history very well. And from being enemies after 1905, Japan and Russia are actually very friendly and they concluded several treaties. And those treaties were basically dividing East Asia into Russian and Japanese sphere of interest. And according to this treaties, Outer Mongolia was sort of under the Russian sphere of interest, and then eastern part of Inner Mongolia and South Manchuria were under Japanese sphere of interest. And everyone seems to be happy. Then the you know World War One comes in, and Japan is actually one of the main supplier of arms. For the Russian Imperial Army to fight in the Western Front, Japan is also one of the main supplies of food, and there are a lot of actually um, Tanaka Giichi, uh, General, future Prime Minister, War Minister. Tanaka Giichi spends five years in Russia. He actually he spoke Russian fluently, and he knew very well the Russian military leadership. He knew very well, you know, the kind of internal developments inside Russia, which is also, you know, we, you, we don't usually know about that side of Tanaka Giyichi. So, yeah, there is a lot of sort of kind of friendly relationships going on before 1917. But again, it's based on sort of spelled out spheres of interest in East Asia. But then 1917 comes in, the government collapses in Russia, uh, the civil war is raging, which was especially brutal and cruel in Russia's eastern part. And then Japan, of course, and this is a known story, right? Japan uses this opportunity as part of the Allied intervention, sends 77,000 of its troops to the Russian Eastern Siberia and the Russian Far East, in addition to 60,000 troops to Northern Manchuria. So they use this opportunity as, you know, kind of Russia retreats from East Asia and loses control of those territories. The Japanese sees this as a golden opportunity to kind of establish its control, not only over Manchuria, but also over Siberia and the Russian Far East.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask about that, because you mentioned that Japan is the largest provider of weapons to the Russian Imperial Army during the war and of food. Mm -hmm. But then, as you mentioned, they're also sending the largest number of troops in the Siberian intervention. As you said, this is often put into that narrative, you know, the kind of stepping stone narrative of Japanese imperialism in East Asia. Mm -hmm. I mean, at least at the time, did they say, well, no, we're just defending, you know, our allies, the Russian Imperial Army.
1: Yeah, of course, the rhetoric was that, you know, first months after the um, October Revolution, Right, in October 1917, as Lenin and the Bolsheviks are signing a peace treaty with the Germans. The rhetoric in Japan is that Russia is becoming a German colony and the Germans are coming to the east and we need to stop that. Then it later changed into that we need to you know, protect Austria-Hungarian prisoners of war. Then a few months later, as the Bolsheviks are winning, as the Red Army is winning and taking city after city in the Siberian-Russian Far East, the reason for the Siberian intervention is to stop the advance of Bolshevism. Right uh, in East Asia, and the Japanese state kind of claims that now they are sort of saving the world and humanity from this communist disease, as they were saying. As I mentioned before, the Japanese government and and military use this opportunity to intervene into the Russian Far East and Siberia, and also intervene into Chinese politics. But the real danger came when the Russian communists became very successful in instigating anti-Japanese and anti-imperialist movements among Koreans and Chinese. And the Bolsheviks-backed anti-imperialist movements in Korea and China, they threatened the security of the Japanese empire. So what I was saying in my book is that the Japanese state reacts not simply to the events inside Russia, and that Russia is becoming communist, but they react more to the influence of Russian communism or Soviet communism in China and in Korea. So what is happening then is the Siberian intervention basically failed by 1922 because the Red Army became victorious and the Japanese troops withdrew although they still occupied the island of Sakhalin until 1925. By 1925, it was very clear that the Bolsheviks are not going away, that they are staying in power, that they are centralizing the state and sort of getting out of this civil war. And there were more and more countries recognizing the Soviet government. So the Japanese government became to be concerned that they would be left out. And there were a lot of negotiations before that, but in 1925, the Japanese government finally recognized the Soviet Union. There was a treaty signed, and in this treaty, there was a very important Article 5, which stipulated that pre-1917 treaties that divided East Asia into the sort of Russian and Japanese sphere of interest still hold true, meaning that now the Soviet Union and Imperial Japan going back to the situation that existed before the Russian Revolution. Soviet Union would keep control over Outer Mongolia, which became now a Mongolian People's Republic, and would control the Chinese Eastern Railway, which is built in Northern Manchuria, while the Japanese would sort of go back to what they had before and having control over Southern Manchuria. So what is happening is that in 1925, we have the same situation that existed before the Bolsheviks came to power. So in a way, that was a signal for the Japanese leadership that the Soviet leaders actually continue the policy of Imperial Russia, that they are heirs to Imperial Russia, and that the Soviet leaders' geopolitical interests are more important rather than ideological. Goto Shinpei, for example, right, as one time foreign minister, he was the one who actively kind of published articles and made speeches, convincing the public and the members of the parliament that the Soviets actually abandoned the idea of world revolution. That they are not planning to, you know, to bring a communist revolution in Japan. They're not planning to do it in China. And they're not planning to do it in Korea. And that this sort of anxiety inside Japan is absolutely groundless. And he actually criticized members of the parliament, right, conservatives, for this anxiety because he blamed them that they lack confidence in their own sort of national polity. So he said that we have kind of interacted with the Americans for so many years and we didn't become a republic. <laughs> and then he continues that... It's ridiculous to think that we will become communists just by dealing with the communists, with the Russian communists. So he was the one who actually pushed a very strong cooperation with the Soviet government and the Soviet economy as well.
0: Speaking of the Russian threat that we were talking about, it really made you scared, you know, as you were just saying, by the time we get to the 20s and 30s, it's this kind of new Russian threat, but it's the idea of we're going to become communist. And of course, then that would lead to the destruction of the imperial system in Japan. Yeah.
1: And yeah.
0: Yeah. So, i mean when we're talking about imperial japan and Soviet russia i mean obviously world war ii comes to mind and there's a the neutrality mm-hmm. pact and then the final invasion but what's happening between the two countries say of course there's a the battle of nomonhan and there's some border mm-hmm. disputes but you know in the 30s and late 30s going up to world war ii what is the relationship like
1: so the machirin incident happens Right in 1931, and that alarms Moscow very much because Manchukuo shares border with Soviet Union. And after 1931, the Soviets began to aggressively militarize the border in the Russian Far East. Right, and this is a very interesting story: how you know Japanese are sent, like recruiting. Local Mongols to spy, you know, inside the Soviet Union and it's also in Soviet Mongolia, and you know, just like see what kind of possibilities exist for for the Japanese to sort of, you know, to push borders maybe even further. So the Soviets know about that, and, and they are militarizing the borders, but they still feel that they are not strong enough to, in case of a conflict, to kind of fight with the, with the Japanese. We also need to remember that in 1927 the Soviets sort of embarked on its first five-year plan. There is also going a lot of internal struggle within the Russian Communist Party. There are this you know great purges inside uh, the Soviet Union and so the Stalin and um, you know the, the Soviet leadership feel like they need to appease Japan as much as possible so they don't want any confrontation and in 1935 they actually sold the um, chinese eastern railway to the japanese and so now the soviet union basically withdrew from northern manchuria and now there is no traces of of the soviet presence over there so now kind of japanese solidifies its control over manchuria so this can this happens in 1935 but since you know mid 1930s there are constant skirmishes on the border between the Soviets and the Japanese. And as you mentioned, there is no manhan, So there is two sort of mini wars in 1938 and 1939. And as we know, the Japanese greatly underestimated the Soviet military capabilities and they lost. At the same time, so at the end of 1930s, there is a shift in, in Japanese foreign policy. And now they actively... Are looking for some sort of treaty, either a you know, non-aggression pact or neutrality pact. They are trying different ways. And finally, they signed this uh, neutrality pact with the Soviet Union, and they upheld it both sides until, of course, August 1945, when the Soviet Union declared war on Japan.
0: But then, you know, in the post war period, there does seem to be, in the 1950s in particular, as people in Japan are becoming disinclined towards American actions in East Asia, there's a kind mm-hmm. of warming of relations between the Soviet Union and Japan again.
1: Yes, and this is a, not just a post-war sort of phenomenon. There's a continuation of sort of attitudes towards Soviet communism and Soviet Union as a state that existed since 1920s. So as I mentioned, Goto Shinpai, right, he was a really pro-Russian, and he was actively pushing for cooperation, cultural and political cooperation and economic cooperation with the Soviet Union. And he was not the only only one. There is a lot of anxiety within Japan that Japanese or foreign communists are going to subvert their national polity, and then we have this famous peace preservation law of 1925, enacted actually just a few months after Japan recognized the Soviet Union. So when I was talking in the beginning about even before the Russian Revolution, attitudes towards, you know, this cultural sort of attraction to Russia, and I mentioned that there is a lot of attraction to Russian literature, but there is also a lot of attraction to Russian revolutionary thought and Russian social thought. Generally, the Japanese felt a lot of affinity. They felt that there is similarity between sort of how modernization was going on in Russia and how it was going on, Inside Japan, and they they felt that kind of social problems, right? The shakai mondai that Japan was facing, Russia had faced them too, just not long ago. And this idea of this, you know, cultural homelessness, this idea of this anti Westernist ideas, the Japanese uh, found the same sentiments and the same attitudes in. Russian literature and in Russian social thinking. So this critique of Western modernity, critique of Western capitalism attracted the Japanese to Russia. So what I want to say is that this attraction and this sort of understanding that both Russia and Japan are facing similar problems, that idea kind of never died. And when we think about the reception of Soviet communism, we need to Have this in mind, this context, that there was already a long standing attraction to Russian revolution. I don't underestimate and and don't undermine this idea that, you know, the Japanese really, or the Japanese conservatives and liberals as well, and the Japanese government really tried to, you know, suppress the Japanese communist movement, Japanese socialist movement. But the Russian critique of capitalism and the West found supporters across different social classes.
0: This is all a great corrective about, you know, it's so much of the narrative about Japan and Russian relations, it's always this kind of antagonism, you know, the that, the Russian yeah. threat, you know, all these other things that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. But as you're saying, it, it seems to be a much more warm relationship between the two and now I wonder if we maybe think about it in terms of the historiography
1: mm-hmm.
0: is this narrative that we get of primarily antagonism between Russia and Japan, you know, mainly Anglophone scholars writing in English, North Americans, Europeans, who at the time they're writing were also engaged in their own conflict with the Soviet Union. I mean, is this an issue mainly of putting their own anti-Soviet bias into that writing?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a Cold War, you know, historiography. And uh where you know this east asia was basically divided into the communist bloc and anti-communist bloc and japan was studied mainly in relationship with you know with the united states and it was assumed as a given in a western scholarship that the interwar japanese political and military elite were naturally anti-communist Right. And so what I was uncomfortable with when I was reading this, you know, history of pre-war Japan. No one explained what was Japanese anti-communism, and uh, it was like yes, they were anti-communists. Yes, they were. A, they were fighting the Russians or they were fighting the Soviets. They didn't like the Soviets because they were anti-communist. But Japanese anti-communism is different from American anti-communism, and I was trying to say in the book that Japanese anti-communism was not. Only about ideological matters, right? That idea of, you know, they were against the idea of class struggle or, you know, the abolition of the monarchy. Japanese anti communism was greatly informed by the fear that the Soviet Union posed to the Japanese control over Korea and then China. Yes. So there were a lot of sort of geopolitical elements in Japanese anti communism.
0: The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website at 150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.